And I'm Dr. Scott Mitchell, and this is the Dharma Realm Podcast. And we're coming to you from the Kodo of the Jodo Shinshu Center in Berkeley, California. This is the Dharma Realm Podcast for February 19th, 2010. And in this episode, we start off talking about the seven masters, but quickly go on to other topics. So we thought... Maybe this time we would talk some more about the seven masters. Uh, We talked about Nagarjuna a while back, and so we thought about maybe talking about Vasubandhu. Uh, But then we thought better of it. Yeah. (laughs) We need more time to prepare. (laughs) It's interesting because often I think Shandao, well, Honen is obviously very important for Shinran. A little bit. um, As his teacher and everything, right? And obviously the, the... uh, innovations of Honen are really important in the Japanese Pure Land tradition. Honen takes a lot from Shandao, from China. And I think Shandao also made a lot of uh, innovations, interesting interpretations um, that really set up uh, the possibility of this, this uh, interpretation of Pure Land that, that goes to Japan and uh, the importance of Buddha name recitation, and you know it's in China as well. But um, so often, I think Shandao is kind of looked at as maybe the most important of the masters. But one of the interesting things about uh, Shinran is that as important as Shandao and Honen are, uh, he also takes a lot from uh, Vasubandhu and then Tan Luan uh, in China. Tan Luan's uh, in so Vasubandhu writes this text, um, the Jodoron or the um, Treatise on the Pure Land, which is kind of a commentary. It's an auto-commentary. It's like verses about the Pure Land Sutras, and then he comments on his own commentary in a way. Uh, and then Tan Luan takes that and brings in other power, and, and so so really um, interesting stuff in there, but really, really difficult to get at, um, especially in a podcast maybe. Um <laughs> Definitely not today. <laughs> you can't get too deeply into it. But just thinking about these um, Pure Land uh, masters, the seven masters of, of Jodo Shinshu, um, one of the things that I've, I have thought in the past is, in a way, they seem like they may uh, be a possible, uh, give a possible opportunity for dialogue, maybe, with other schools of Buddhism. Uh, whether it's Jodo Shu uh, in, you know, Japanese Buddhism or uh, some of the more Chinese kind of schools of Buddhism or uh, basically most of the Japanese schools anyway, if not all of them, look to Nagarjuna. Yeah. Right? So we all share, have this common, uh, or Mahayana schools anyway, have this common uh, figure of Nagarjuna. But then the problem is... even I think even... Non-Japanese schools with Nagarjuna. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, he's... Chinese, but Mahayana for sure. Yeah, Tibetan, yeah. right? Um, but then the problem becomes, but Shinran's interpretations or Pure Land interpretations are very, very different and even look at different texts than uh, what maybe Zen or a more emptiness-based school or an esoteric school. Right? They're all looking at supposedly the same Nagarjuna, and yet they're using different texts, they're using different doctrines. So sometimes it seems like almost more of a wall in a way, possibly. 
right? That um, we have the true Nagarjuna, maybe, or you know, Nagarjuna may have done those other things, but this is what he really meant, kind of thing. <laughs> Whoever is saying it, if it's me or you sure. know, someone from another school. Um, well, I think that's the the danger, right? That's the risk you run of of saying of going to somebody from another school and saying, "Oh, look, we have Nagarjuna in, in common," and having that person from the other school or even yourself say, "But this is." This is what Nagarjuna really meant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's the the danger. But um, I don't know. Does that? I mean, how, how often does that happen? That's true. Do we think? But then again, how often do we have this sort of intra-Buddhist dialogue? Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the issues I think with inter-religious dialogue, interfaith dialogue, intra-Buddhist dialogue is that a lot of it depends on the attitude yeah. of the participants, right? The dialoguers, yeah, and, and dialogians, <laughs> dialogians. <laughs> and having that sort of mutual respect to be able to say, oh, you look at Nagarjuna and see this, I look at Nagarjuna and see that, you know, even though we have different interpretations, they're still the same Nagarjuna, maybe, let's talk about that, yeah. <laughs> rather than just sort of shooting down the, you know, alternative point of view. Mm-hmm. And it's not even just, <clears throat> the thing with Nagarjuna is that he's still Mahayana. Yeah. So there's still not necessarily the um, bridge to Theravada Buddhism, for sure. example. But we all share Shakyamuni mm-hmm. um, as being really important for all of our schools. And yet, there's still sectarian division there too, right? That <laughs> even though you know we um, all look to the same uh, founder, in a way, of, of Shakyamuni as founding Buddhism in this. Maybe not all of us. Actually, prob- I won't say all, because there may be some kinds of Buddhism that don't look to Shakyamuni as the founder, that he was only one manifestation, yeah. right? And that there's actually other people more important. Um, you could actually look at Shinju that way. But um, but forgetting that, I think most will hold up Shakyamuni as very important and yet have these different manifestations right. and, of and what Buddhism is. Certainly, I think within Shinju, there's a tendency to still rely on the words of the Buddha mm-hmm. um, and to say, you know, I, I, at least on a popular level, I've seen all kinds of people within the Shin community, you know, say things to me like, oh, well, the Buddha says this, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I recognize how that might not be norm, the like sort of doctrinal normative stance, so to speak, right? That, you know, at, and there's, there's certainly within Shinshu an interpretation of the importance of the historical Buddha is simply that Shakyamuni came into existence in order to talk about Amida. And so anything else that the historical Buddha said is sort of, not as important, mm-hmm. right? That's the sort of that would seem to be one of the the more orthodox yeah. interpretation. But I think certainly overseas, many of the overseas districts, or um, maybe even in twentieth century, it's become more important, or it's seen been seen as more important to to look at what um, Shakyamuni taught, right? And the quote unquote original teachings, Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Path, that kind of thing. Yeah, but there's still problems. Yeah, but we still. <laughs> why can't we get along? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I think that the problem is, is that everybody, everybody thinks that they know what these people said, or, oh. or at least I think that, I think that the reality of, you know, the human condition is, is that we in turn tend to interpret the world from our particular locations, right? So if I look at Nagarjuna, I, for example, one of my, one of my favorite lines of Nagarjuna is um, that you should practice like your hair is on fire, mm-hmm. which is actually somewhat, um, you know, not very Shinshu if you think about it. I mean, I know that it, we use it in a, in a Shin context, but it's not, you know, Nagarjuna is basically saying you need to practice really hard, mm-hmm. which sort of contradicts the whole other power thing. 
Um, I love that phrase, and for whatever karmic reasons, I have a you know an affinity with that phrase, and so I like using it all the time. Um, somebody else might come to Nagarjuna and see a completely different, have a different karmic affinity with something else that Nagarjuna says, and then you know want to say this is what Nagarjuna really says and what he's all about. Mm-hmm. Which is the problem is that everybody has these different perspectives on you know these figures. Nagarjuna is actually um, credited with the finger pointing at the moon. Yeah, um, expression too, but that can be interpreted in so many different ways too. Right. So, yeah. Um, so you were talking about suffering earlier. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And That's another one of those um, kind of catch-all Buddhist phrases that gets thrown out sometimes. Of um, th- put out there, not thrown out like thrown away, but put out. That um, the only thing the Buddha taught is suffering. And the removal of suffering or the cessation of suffering. Which I think is just ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> and I used to hate it. That really used to bug me sometimes. But recently I, found, I was looking at a book and um, found that phrase. And I was kind of like, oh, yeah, maybe that's right. Like it, it, it really resonated with me that time. Yeah. Um, so, again, and, you know, you mentioned that it could be a form of essentialism. Right. Right. That if, if, you know, I guess it kind of depends on how you're going to use the phrase. Well, I think, I think the, the, the problem is to say that the only thing that the Buddha, that you can use in a couple different ways, right? You can say that the only thing the Buddha ever taught was suffering and the end of suffering. Well, if you say the only thing the Buddha ever taught, that's just patently not true. Clearly the Buddha taught about a whole lot of things. Mm-hmm. And, and some of them had to do with suffering. Some of them had to do with suffering indirectly. Some of them had to, nothing to do with suffering. Um, so to make the claim that the Buddha only ever talked about one thing is naive, at least. Mm-hmm. Because the, there's a lot of things the Buddha talked about. You know, he had a, what, 80-year career or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. He talked about one thing. I see what you're saying. Right, 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 right. <laughs> On the other hand, if you say that the essence of what the Buddha taught was suffering and the end of suffering. Um, that isn't necessarily untrue, but it's important to recognize that you're making an evaluative judgment. You're saying that the essential thing that the Buddha taught, the most important thing that the Buddha taught, he may have taught other things, but the most important thing he taught was suffering, the end of suffering. Mm-hmm. That's a value judgment. You're making mm-hmm. a value judgment. Mm-hmm. You know, you could easily look at the Buddha's teachings and say that the most important thing he taught was, you know, was mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Because that's certainly part of the Eightfold Noble Path. It's part of his, you know, very first sermons. I mean, I could easily make a case that the most important thing the Buddha taught was was mindfulness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But that's still a value judgment, right? Right, right, right. And that's ah, that's the problem. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's that's where we get into trouble when we make these judgments that this one thing, when we single out one thing that the Buddha or Nagarjuna or Vasubandhu or anybody else, that one thing is the most important thing. Everything else is not important. Right, right. Maybe. I'm not willing to see that. And, you know, I love talking about suffering, and I think mindfulness is really important. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that they're the essential, the only thing that we need to worry about. See, I think a positive way you could look at that phrase of the suffering, and um, that that's the only thing the Buddha taught, um, is as a kind of a hermeneutic, mm. right? And to realize, okay, yeah, maybe um, we're getting caught up in... Um, some aspect of Buddhism, but then to, to kind of bring it back, like to, as, as a kind of corrective 
don't get caught up in this or that, but that, you know, this isn't to feel good about yourself or to, to look good to other people or whatever, but, you know, ultimately it's about um, looking into the human condition, yeah. recognizing the human condition or the condition of existence and uh, correcting that because the diagnosis of, and I mean, it, it, to me, that's where I think it kind of made sense Yeah, that, you know, it's, it's about um, waking up to samsara in a way. Right? And waking up to, to realize that uh, the kind of karmic tendencies that we're um, stuck with uh, cause us suffering and, and recognizing that and then, and then uh, looking for ways to get out of that. So in that sense, I think it's not necessarily being used as an um, essential, essentialist kind of sure. um, statement or a kind of – it doesn't have to be a political statement or a, or a – um, uh, I'm just not thinking of the word. Um, Essentialist value judgment on other people, right? Or <laughs> ideology, sure, sure, right? That kind of thing, or or um, that 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 it can be used uh, in a positive sense. But I see what you're saying too about yeah, um, and I think that that what you're saying there that that it can be used in a positive sense is important to remember. I think that you know, for me, a very important teaching, a very important lesson that I've learned from Buddhism has to do with language mm-hmm. and the use of language. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. In the five precepts for lay people, there's one of the, not even be the first one, is that you shouldn't lie. But if you look at some of the original texts, it's that you should refrain from false or malicious speech. And a whole host of things get lumped into this category, everything from an outright lie to lies of omission to gossip to using four-letter words, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But I think that the important point of that precept is to remind us that language is really important and language is really powerful and how you use language has consequences. Right, words really do have power and meaning, but language is always contextualized. Language doesn't exist in a vacuum. So if I say the only thing the Buddha ever taught is X, and I'm using that in an unmindful way, unconscious of how my words are being taken, I think it can have negative consequences. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, like you're saying, if you're using that phrase in a very particular context to say, you know, to get people to wake up to this idea of suffering or to sort of shake things up, that could have really positive mm-hmm. consequences. So I think the important thing is just to know how language can be used positively or negatively and just be aware of that. Right. I actually had a really interesting experience, uh, language-related experience, because uh, I have to write articles for my church newsletter, and I actually one had one due this past weekend and I haven't even started. Um, but... <laughs> I was writing about New Year's, I think, and I didn't want to write about, I didn't want to say something about this is important for all Buddhists, Mm -hmm. because I don't know if it is New Year's, right? Maybe it's not important in um, Sri Lanka, or maybe in China, New Year's is in February, so, you know, January 1st may not be important. So I just, I was thinking of, of, I didn't want to use language to... Um, exclude exclude certain, people yeah, or yeah. or kind of you know universalize everything and then by in that way kind of putting them down. So I said it's important for Japanese Buddhists um, this um, New Year's. Yeah. I got a letter in the mail, <laughs> and this person said um, I was very upset by your article because you said that you know New Year's is important for Japanese Buddhists. What does it have to do with being Japanese? Right. Buddhism isn't only for Japanese people. Buddhism is for anyone, right? Anyone should feel welcome. And I realized I just felt my my world didn't crumble away, but I was really upset because um, that's not 
what I the message that I wanted to portray. Yeah, you right? were you were intending to be as inclusive as possible. But. Right, and I ended up being completely exclusive. And I think she, in a way, this person who called was right that my choice of words was wrong. I should have said Japanese Buddhism, mm. mm-hmm. uh, because. By saying Japanese Buddhists, it can be easily interpreted as saying Buddhists of Japanese ethnicity or race. Yeah. yeah. Right. But if I'd said Japanese Buddhism, I can be any race at all and be um, a member of a of a school of Japanese Buddhism. Um, right. The flip side of that is Tibetan Buddhism. When people may say I'm a Tibetan Buddhist, but aren't Tibetan ethnically. Yeah. Right, and so that's I was being reverse sensitive in that way. I didn't want to do something like that, where you know to say, um, right? It's by that's saying the problem of language. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and it's, my best intentions go awry, or whatever the expression is, right? Yeah, yeah. That I totally went trying to fix one problem, I created another. Yeah. Um, and that's that's the problem of language and knowing your context, because here you're writing in in a you know a church newsletter, which presumably you you not only know the audience but you actually know in person the vast majority of people who are actually going to read that right they're your members so you'll see them whereas if you write something for a magazine or on the computer on the internet or or you know say it on national television who knows who your audience is mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then that problem of language gets it sort of multiplied by outlandish things that people say that don't even mean to be outlandish <laughs> You can't win, Harry. Get off. Huh? <laughs> Don't say anything. <laughs> I called the person, talked it out. I think I explained my point that that's not what I meant. You know, yeah. that, but I don't know. I was glad to have it pointed out to me. Because, sure. Um, so, yeah. So how we get to here? Um, yeah. <laughs> Well, I think that what we're talking about is how there's there's these different perspectives on uh, the the Buddhist teachings or the different perspectives on different enlightened masters' teachings or or whatnot, and you know, part of the difficulty is 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 using language in a way to describe your particular kind of Buddhism and, and, and you have to sort of qualify things all the time, right? Like, well, the Shin Buddhist perspective mm-hmm. on Nagarjuna says that this, and when he says that, he means this. And it's like, that can be, that can be difficult. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> it can be cumbersome linguistically. <laughs> but in, and that's the funny thing is that <clears throat> I was, tr- that was a crazy thing, was that I was trying to not be exclusive in a way, or I was trying to be clear and I just ended up excluding everyone non-Japanese, myself included, because I'm not Japanese either. I'm half Japanese, right? It's like a, a totally different thing to me. So it was bizarre. That was, I guess, what was um, shocking to me was that trying to be clear, trying not to step on anyone's toes and just like mashing someone's toes <laughs> in, the, in the process. And uh, that's it's the kind of thing, too, with the universal Buddhism thing. Why do we have to have all these different schools? Why do we have to always be distinguishing between my school and that school or this school and that school? And um, and yet, I think that that's kind of the reality, right? That there yeah. are all these different schools, but that's not a bad thing. Yeah. Right? That that's actually, I think, a great thing. Um, and even though the rhetoric of the schools may put themselves on top and all the other ones lower, um, I feel like... I don't feel the need to to be superior to the other ones. Right. This is the right one for me. Yeah, um, and I, 
Yeah, and I think that's an important question. That, that, that statement about rhetoric, I think, is important. I think that there's definitely, in the history of Buddhism, plenty of polemical accounts of people, you know, making the explicit claim that this particular school of Buddhism is better than this other Buddhism that we're going to, you know, actually use by name or come up with derogatory names like Hinayana, which literally means lesser vehicle. Right, right, right. There were, you know, certainly... Uh, people both in China and Japan who would rank the different schools, right? They would say, of all the Buddhist schools, this is the best one. And then there's these other, you know, subcategories. Tiantai's on top or Lotus. Lotus And I think that we can retain a sense of sectarian Buddhism without necessarily using that same kind of rhetoric. Mm -hmm. We can acknowledge that there are these different schools, but just because historically there has been this negative rhetoric doesn't mean we have to continue to employ negative rhetoric in the present or the future, mm-hmm. right? That we can, as you were saying, we can recognize that this this particular school of Buddhism works for me, and it might not work for you, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, talk about the differences of these schools because, you know, many of the differences, I think, are certainly cultural or historical and you might be able to make an argument for how the differences have nothing to do with Buddhism. I, I don't even want to go down that road, but <laughs> um, but I think that there's also differences of practice because there are different people in the world. It's an ontological reality that no two people are the same. Mm-hmm. Even identical twins are different. <laughs> and they might have different karmic needs that are fulfilled best by different practices of Buddhism. To assume that there's only one kind of Buddhism, that's, I think, dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Quite frankly. <laughs> and that's where the where I think you and I tend to uh, react against the essentialist moves that we see yeah. being done of Buddhism is about this only. Right. Or Buddhism is only about this. Um, so I think that... I record these angry rants. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, we get podcast topics out of it. <laughs> but, so on the one hand, keep making essentialist statements. Right, right, right. So we have something to talk about. Um, interesting, though, huh? How come we uh, are sensitive to that? Um, well, that's a, that's a good question. <laughs> I don't know why, personally. I mean, maybe for me, because I'm, you know, I've always, I've, I'm kind of, um, I feel like I kind of embody difference in a way mm. being half Japanese and half Caucasian and having lived in both countries and um, always felt like I wasn't a hundred percent at home in either one necessarily and yet I've come to be very comfortable embodying this difference because right. maybe the feeling of belonging may be an illusion right the feeling of being the norm right is is um not dangerous necessarily, but but um, questionable, right? And so, to me, maybe maybe that was part of um, what appealed to me in Buddhism too. Was this kind of like not willing, or this uh, being critical and trying to be aware of when things that seemed normal and right maybe weren't necessarily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Huh. So, but I but I'm sure all the time I'm coming from my I, I catch myself all the time actually coming from the point of view of like like American. Uh, even language again in Japan walking around I would see this one it was like um, it did say pension P-E-N-S-I-O-N mm-hmm. and I was like what's a pension it's a hotel what are these people doing they're so stupid right like I just I was like 
They don't even know what pension means. A pension is something you get, right? Money you get after after being a soldier or something or, or working at this company. And then I was just reading, so I knew I was right about what pension meant. And then I was reading um, this book about Bill Bruford, who was a drummer for Yes and King Crimson, and he's British, but has traveled all over the world. And he said something about staying in a French pension. So it's a French word, and that's <laughs> French for hotel. And British English probably uses it as a normal word. American right. English, we tend not to. Mm-hmm. And so when you go to Japan and look at all this um, English language, quote-unquote, or katakana words, a lot of times it's German or French or British English, different kind of English. And yet, as an American, I tend to assume that American, American English, is, English right. is the norm. Yeah. Right. So I'm always caught in that kind of... Um, uh, Different perspectives on reality. Yeah. Well, I'd like to have them, but I tend well, not to have that, them. I tend I'm, to be yeah, from my I mean, that's own. what I'm saying is that like, we have this perspective on the quote-unquote reality of English, and proper English was based on our own particular perspective. Mm-hmm. Proper English is based on the fact that we were both sort of raised in an American English-speaking context, but that's not the only perspective, right? There's right. this other perspective on what real English is, and real English is the British system or Australian English or... Quasi Japanese American English, <laughs> or even what what is the idea of real English? Yeah, right? it's exactly. changing all the time right. too. Real English now might be different than five years ago or ten minutes ago, or yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know why I'm particularly upset by these essentialisms. To answer your question, mm-hmm. I think probably for a lot of the same reasons you are, in my own particular background and sort of being an outsider growing up and um, not feeling normal and and that sort of same similar critique of what is normal and is it okay to, you know, should everybody be normal and, and all of those kinds of things. So there's probably something similar there, but, mm-hmm. but again, I think it has to do with our own particular, you know, to use the Buddhist language, I think our own particular karmic background, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, I, you know, I certainly don't believe that we have a sort of like fatalistic role to play in our lives, but I do think that there is a certain amount of you know, karmic baggage that we come into this world with that we have to deal with this time around, if you want to use a literal sort of view of reincarnation. But mm-hmm. um, I think that affects how we see the world. Mm-hmm.